You're listening to the No Gray Areas podcast with Patrick McCullough. Today's guest is Catherine Haley, consultant and founder of Oak Rose Group. Catherine helps us answer an important question. Why should we care? Let's dive in. Catherine, welcome to the No Gray Areas podcast. Uh, we met for the first time a couple of months ago. And uh, as you know, I shared this with you. Uh, I started meeting with people uh, six, seven, eight months ago. And, and I kept hearing, you got to meet with Catherine. You got to meet with Catherine. You got to meet with Catherine. And we met and I see why people said that. Uh, oh, it was such a great meeting. But you. for the audience to get to know you, uh, what, what are you doing right now? You're, you have a consulting company, correct? I do. Gosh. And first of all, thank you so much for this honor. It's a mm-hmm. real pleasure uh, just to be a part of No Gray Areas. The covered, the topics you guys have covered are incredible. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so I moved home a year ago. I'm born and raised in Arizona, and I started a strategy consulting company called Oak Rose Group, and our mission is to promote the policies, ideas, and organizations that lead to human flourishing. So we work specifically wow. in the education and workforce and upward mobility spaces. Yeah. Um, we support philanthropists and their charitable giving. We work with nonprofits that are trying to launch new initiatives in these yeah. particular spaces. And we also work in the policy realm so that individuals, whether it's in education, workforce training, or other spaces, that um, the policy conditions allow for those things to thrive. So it's been a wild year. Yeah. When did you start that? Uh, officially launched it March 2021. And relaunched in September with four business partners. We have a senior and a junior associate that are part of our team. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're always looking to bring on new talent, formally or informally, as we get to serve our clients across the country. Well, and you talked about uh, you you deal with policy, but if we back up a little further, there's a reason you deal with that, right? So uh, before you came here, you were in D.C. area? Yes, I had the honor to live in D.C. for over 20 years. At the very beginning, I did research. I thought I was called to be a doctor. Um, That didn't happen. Uh, But I found myself in Capitol Hill, where I worked for 13 years serving various members of Congress in the House and Senate. The vast majority of my time was in the House. And I worked on social policy, initially on health care, eventually focusing on anti-poverty, education, workforce, other uh, other initiatives around religious freedom and such. And uh, the last seven were speaking, working before Speaker Boehner, uh, mm-hmm. two years in the minority and five in the majority. So built coalitions, worked on education initiatives, uh, labor and employment and other things. Uh, and it was an extraordinary uh, season of my yeah. life. Yeah. And then thought, what am I going to do? What comes yeah. next? And got to work for a great organization called the Philanthropy Roundtable. And we had the opportunity to serve philanthropists in their charitable giving of investing in communities and civil society and really bringing to life the policy that I had worked on, sort of breaking down those barriers so kids in lots of different environments all across the country had opportunities to go to great schools. And then I came home. Yeah. So wow. it's been well, a wild home. couple. Thanks. Welcome home. Thanks. And this is your adoptive home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm originally from Montana, but we've been here for 16, 17 years. So this feels so like, like home almost now. like a native. Yeah. This is, yeah. Yeah. We call ourselves, well, we don't, but I'm, I'm a Phoenician now. I know that because I was just in Washington last week, Washington uh-huh. State. Yeah. And I was freezing. 
It got down exactly. to like 50 degrees. And I was, I felt like we should have Christmas music on and start decorating totally. for Christmas. It's, Just on that same note, yeah. a year ago, it was the second or third, I think it was second or third week I'd been home. The week it was a high of 50 every day. It was gray. It kind of rained. And I was shivering the entire week. Yes. And I thought to myself, can I put on a winter coat? Mm -hmm. And I didn't, but I did wear multiple layers. Yeah. And I think I may have gone out wearing gloves. Yeah. So anyway, yes. Yeah, when it you, gets down. You're like, you, you get it, totally. Well, and my wife is that way. When it gets down to like 65 degrees, she always has her little gloves on if we're going out for a walk. And <laughs> totally. anybody visiting from out of state thinks that's hilarious. But you're, I think there's something about the, the blood thinning or whatever happens. I think happens, it does. I just didn't think it would it. Have to happen to me in like <laughs> yes. three weeks, but yeah. it did. Yeah. <laughs> well, Catherine, one of the interesting things when you hear your background, your story, there's a theme through all of it, isn't there? And you actually use a word about human flourishing mm -hmm. and that seems to be a theme what why is that something you spent almost your entire life in some different capacity working with great question you know my faith is really important to me um i have a personal relationship with christ that starts a long time ago mm. and i think really deep down it, it was rooted in the sense of like we as as image bearers of Christ, we have inherent dignity and worth. Mm -hmm. And so in my initial calling of me being a doctor is when I wanted to care for patients, it was like, you have inherent dignity and worth. And therefore, using the gifts that I have, I want to care for you mm -hmm. and bring you into wholeness and health and well-being. Um, but I didn't get to do that. Instead, I got to work on policy and was able to work on issues spanning not only our country, but impacting individuals around the world. And again, it's sort of rooted in this, like, why should we care? We should care because you're a human being and you have inherent worth. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the policies that we create or the mobilization of philanthropy that if we have that opportunity should be about breaking those down breaking down those barriers so that you can be who you were created to be. Mm. Obviously not everybody has a shared faith that I do, but that shouldn't yeah. that shouldn't be a hindrance to me. Like I should do everything that in my power so that you yeah. can really thrive. Um so yeah, it's been uh it's been a journey that I haven't necessarily predicted for myself, but it's a journey that I've sort of held with open hands and like, okay, what's next? And how can I use the relationships and the connections and the resources mm -hmm. that I have mm -hmm. so that individuals can be who they were created to be? Don't you think you, you just made a, 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 a statement that I think is the older we get and the more we've traveled this journey of life, we see where you said, I wouldn't have predicted this journey for myself. Oh, my gosh. I think most of us as human beings, after we we live into our third, fourth decades, you know, of life and we I think most of us are saying that we're like, yeah, I didn't really see this where I was going to be landing or going. But, man, it's a great journey. It is, you know, um, one year while I was on the Hill, I had a number of friends that were losing their jobs either because, you know, working in politics, your job is never guaranteed. You don't know when your boss is going to retire uh, and you don't know if they're going to be reelected or if they're just going to resign one day. Um, so I was meeting with individuals who I had great regard and was like, tell me about your life journey. And all of them, the thing that was so interesting for them is that they had a nonlinear career. They had a, their life was just sort of sort of like a family circus cartoon yeah. where they just sort of went here and they went over here and they went up and down and around. and But through it, there was this theme, but they would have never predicted. So yeah. Um, yeah. when I look to them, 
those individuals that I had the conversations with, I'm like, oh, right. Like I need to be open to that because mm-hmm. who knows, who knows where God will take mm-hmm. us tomorrow, yeah. right? That's part of the, the thrill and adventure of this journey, right? A hundred percent. The journey of life, even if someone isn't a, a, a person of faith, but as people of faith, followers of Jesus, it's the part of the adventure of following Jesus too, of just saying yes to him today and not knowing where that's going to lead A hundred percent. next month. Or, well, I want to come back to some of the things that you said, but before we do, I want to, I want to uh, admit something to you that's going to make you so happy. Okay. This year during March Madness, I made my picks and it was the first time in my life you know who I I picked the win the national championship? Duke. 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 Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I mean, depressing for the like final four, but yes. um anyway. Well, the first time we met, yeah. I found out you were a huge Duke fan because yeah. you went there. I did. You experienced that. You would go to the games. And I did. Um, and I admitted to you that I was almost an anti-Duke fan because you I were. was a Carolina fan. I had an annoying friend who was a Duke fan. But just, you and my brother-in-law. Yes. So you deal with that all the time. Yeah. But I this this year I'm going. How can I not? That is cheer incredible. For He's so such a yeah yeah. You, that, you, that's like I, a moment of grace. I feel like <laughs> in your wisdom, you're like, oh yes. yeah, maybe. And then your team kind of won anyway. Like I mean, they beat Duke yes. in the in a Final Four. Yes. They did not beat Kansas in the finals, obviously, yeah. but. Yeah. Um, so, I couldn't wait to admit you. that to you. I thank almost you. sent you an email telling you that, and I'm like, I got to wait till she's Just on the wait. podcast. The, that, the joy is yes, like, yes. it's relished right it's, now. Thank you. For thank anybody you. listening who's not watching, you have a huge <laughs> smile on your face right now totally. knowing that, that an anti-Duke fan picked Duke to win it all this Thank year. you for your compassion. Wouldn't that have been an that, amazing story, though? It would have been. It would have been so incredible. I mean, if there's a guy that deserved that, it would be Krzyzewski, and he just... I agree. Yeah, yeah. I think there are probably naysayers, and if this was, like, live, we'd get lots of hate emojis yeah, right now yeah, and boos, yeah. but, I mean, he is an extraordinary coach yeah. and believes so much in his players, yeah. and his last home game, which, unfortunately, they did not win, but to see, like, you know... I think it was in the hundreds of players sitting players and just like, yeah, we're part of this family and he and his wife like care so deeply. So yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Walk off the court holding. Oh my gosh. It's like, it was really uh, sweet. They did the uh, little video before as the final four or as the, um, as the tournament was starting Mm -hmm. and honoring him. And I was sitting on the couch with tissues, like wiping oh my, my eyes, and I've cheered against him my whole life. So, all it's right. Okay. So, so um, the first time we met, uh-huh. I, I had my notebook open, and you were you were saying some phrases that were so good. I was jotting them down, uh-huh. and I knew I needed you get, to get you on the podcast at some point, and just have you speak into some of those things that you mentioned in in our so in in our first interview. So, what I want to do is just. Name one of those things or one of those phrases and have you speak into it. You already mentioned a few of them, but I want to go back to that and touch Please. on that a little bit. Yeah. You, you talked about image bearers, mm-hmm. that we're image bearers. Unpack that a little bit. You shared a little bit, but let's go back to that. Yeah. So, I mean, again, so so much of who I am is informed by my relationship with Christ. So if you go back to the very beginning, mm-hmm. like God fashions Adam and mm-hmm. then he fashions Eve out of his rib. And so there's this sense of like, I am... Like we are created in his image and which, as I said earlier, means that there's inherent dignity and worth. Yes, yes. Like if there's certain, there's something in our DNA that is like, wow. And nothing else. Like when we read the early part of that narrative, exactly. nothing else is creating his image. Like it just right. shows, I love the word, the phrase you're using, the inherent dignity of humanity 
because we're, we're creating the image of God, we will never lay our eyes on another human that right. doesn't have that inherent dignity because they are creating the image of God. That's what you're saying. Exactly. And so obviously individuals live their lives in different ways, but still we have that mark on who we are. And, um, and so as a result of that, you know, friends and family sometimes are like, you're too diplomatic at times. But I think it's out of respect of we might differ, we might have different backgrounds, we might have different life experiences, but you are still a human being and you still then therefore have dignity and worth and I need to respect that. And if I don't, well, shame on me because then I'm not living into who God's called me to be. Yeah. So. Well, and I didn't miss what you said earlier. And for our listeners right now, you asked the question, why should I care? You were asking that about yourself. Right. But that's a great question. Inia, why should we care? Why should we care that there's poverty? Why should we care that there's mm -hmm. whatever the injustice is? But what you were saying is when you began to understand what that image bears and the inherent dignity means, that's the answer to that. Mm -hmm. We should care about any well of those said. injustices simply because we're creating the image of God. Yeah. And, exactly. and you've lived your life then around that, like your your every role that you've had, even though you didn't predict where you would be, right. has been around dealing with those kind of issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in another phrase that you used, you said the equality of opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, what what did you mean by that? Well, again, it goes back to this idea of breaking down barriers. So I'll give you an example in the context of education. Our traditional public education system is set up by your zip code and where you live geographically, and you're assigned a particular school. And for some, that means if you live in an under-resourced community, that means your school might not have lots of resources, which mm -hmm. might mean your ability to attract great teachers or leaders or your ability to supplemental services or after-school programming might be at risk. Well, why, why do kids have to go to their zone school? Why can't they go to other schools that might be mm -hmm. uh, better suited to them? Mm -hmm. You know, individuals with means, families might move to a specific community so they can have access to a school, or they might be able to supplement their child's education with tutors or send them to a private institution, et cetera. Well, why, like equality of opportunity in that context is, let's like get down to brass tacks and let all families have the same choices. Mm. If you're a family of means, you can certainly pay for it, but why not open those doors to those that don't have the financial means so that mm -hmm. they too have equality of opportunity to find the best learning environment. Yeah. When we met that first time, we were talking about how traveling abroad, mm -hmm. especially going to a third world country, a developing country, will change your, the entire perspective you look at, right? And that's one of the things that you see with mm -hmm. equal, equality of opportunity. That right. I remember the first time I took a group of students and uh, they really wrestled, as I did, mm -hmm. the first time I came back going, why did I get to be born in this country? Yeah. Why did, because I realized the opportunities I caught, uh, uh, received in life, simply because I was born in this country in what we might call a middle class, probably in my family, a lower middle class, but still good school, help. Yeah. I got opportunities that many people in this world never will have because mm -hmm. of that. And and you're saying in, in our country or abroad, because of the inherent dignity, we should be trying to figure out how do we give equal opportunities to people. Exactly. Wow. Well, and the other, like, here's another example, an organization that 
my family and I have been involved with for a long time is called Opportunity International. I think you and I talked about it very briefly. And they um, provide microloans to mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. And often these first loans are $250. They're typically paid back in three to four months. Often the repayment rate is 98%, if not near 100. Um, many times they're women. But it's these little teeny businesses, whether it's uh, making tortillas or creating bags or selling yuca or potatoes or um, making these really interesting, intricate uh, crafts, like by getting a loan, these individuals are able to buy more of the supply, create the product, sell the product, and then they are then able to invest it back into their community. Well, wow, like oftentimes those entrepreneurs through these loans, you know, opens this incredible door for the next generation and those that come behind. And so anyway, this idea of like equality of opportunity is just about, we can certainly, we can't always guarantee the outcomes of individuals' Mm -hmm. choices in their Mm -hmm. life experience, Mm -hmm. but if you can break down those barriers so that individuals, regardless of their background, can access those things, my gosh, like the world is their oyster. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to miss what you said. I don't, I, you know, I moved right past it. But even oh, the no. illustration that you gave or the analogies you gave about right now, if someone's born in a zip code, that's where they have to go to school mm-hmm. in a lot of places. And we are giving them a more equal opportunity when they're giving giving them an opportunity, which could totally transform a family's life. Oh, like my a, gosh. And that could have a generational impact, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I love, again, that's where I, I, I love that we started with the whole thing about image bearers and inherent dignity, because the reason you fight for equality of opportunity right. is because we have the inherent dignity. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, why just me? Why can't you? Yes. Whoever you is, like whoever you are, why should it just be for me? Let's break down those barriers so that you have that same opportunity yeah. to flourish. Yeah. How we get there for as far as policy of course, it's a different, um, that might be in the nuance and, and sort of the nitty gritty. But mm-hmm. I do want to break those bar- barriers down so that individuals can flourish. Uh, another uh, phrase that you used was economies of scale. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Explain that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. People uh, are seeing right now why yeah. when I met you the first time, I'm like writing stuff down. Oh, going, my oh, gosh. That's so good. Economies of scale. I'm, I'm probably going to give not the best definition, but... I think it's this idea of like oftentimes we have really great proof points of so I think about um, in the con again I'll go back to education because it's a space yeah. that I work in a lot. Um, in 1991, Wash or Wisconsin was the first state that passed um, school choice policy, mm. and um, it meant that kids in Milwaukee were able to get a voucher and they could go to a private school. At the time, the public schools in Milwaukee were uh, failing particularly kids of color in a pretty extraordinary way. Mm-hmm. And so the local state legislature, legislator, um, her first name is Polly and her last name is escaping me, but she uh, she's a black woman and she advocated for more options for the kids in her mm-hmm. community. So you, know, you have this, this school choice program where kids of predominantly black students were able to go to private school options. It has, in many ways, changed the course of many families in the Milwaukee area. Since then, that policy has expanded. But this idea of like economies of scale is that like you had this great bright spot in Wisconsin, 
And a couple years later, you had a state like Arizona that passed um, the Arizona Tax Credit Scholarship Program, and you had a state like Florida. Well, now you have dozens of states across the country that are breaking down barriers to give more kids more opportunity. Mm -hmm. Same thing in the charter school space. Charter schools are public schools, but they have the autonomy and independence to uh, hire the teachers they want, the length of school day, the curriculum. They're held to a high bar, meaning they have to meet the state standards. They have to meet their charter that that have been authorized so they could operate. Um, but initially, there was these lots of little bright spots, and people thought of charter schools as sort of like alternative strange schools. Yeah, but yeah. some of the charter schools in the country are the top performing in the country. And what I mean by economies of scale is this idea that you have some proof points but then you can use philanthropy and policy to really pour almost like gasoline on them. So they yeah. had the opportunity to serve so many more individuals. Just to scale that. So if you have a school that's reaching um, maybe those that wouldn't have the same equal opportunity, but mm -hmm. they can scale it simply by donations, helping, whatever it might be. Policy, yeah, philanthropy, policy, yep. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So it's idea of like you have these proof points, but then because you have these proof points, you can create the conditions to um, really hit, uh, to grow exponentially so that more individuals are able to benefit. Okay, so this is totally off the subject for a moment, but I okay. think it's an important question. How do you keep from getting discouraged in working with this for so long? Because even as you're unpacking this, it gets messy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a pretty simple answer to why should I care? Well, if I'm a person of faith because of uh, their image bearers, inherent mm -hmm. dignity, so I should get involved. But you start getting involved in any injustice and it gets messier and messier and there's layer after layer. I always say injustices are like an onion. There's layer after layer after layer. So you've been working with this for a while now. Mm -hmm. How do you keep from getting discouraged? I think certainly my faith um, and time and prayer and sort of pleading and maybe sometimes crying. But then it's also meeting individuals and you get to know their stories and then you're sort of rejuvenated. Oh, this is why I get to do what I get to do. Um, like COVID was unbelievably, um, had an unbelievably disastrous impact on many kids around the country. Mm, yeah. Um, so many kids didn't have an opportunity to go to school, which means they didn't have the social interaction. Um, sometimes the learning environments that they were in, they had to do it over Zoom or some other alternative, so virtual, and it wasn't the right environment for them to thrive. Yeah. Um, many of the gains that we had made over the last nearly 20 years were erased um, in mm. two years, and which is incredibly discouraging. Yeah. But at the same time, even here in Arizona, there's a woman named Janelle Wood who... Um, is a de dedicated community organizer, passionate about particularly black students having educational opportunity. She used um, COVID as an opportunity to create micro schools. So she has mobilized the moms in her, that she knows yeah. in Phoenix, and they are now leading these small micro schools. And last week I had an opportunity to be at the Senate the Arizona Senate um, Education Committee, and met a mom who um, who is like my daughter was in um, not being well served in her local school, but we learned about this, and I've seen her come to life. And so I think 
meeting individuals and then seeing these bright spots, it's like, oh, absolutely, we cannot turn our back. We cannot stop and pivot to something else. Yeah. Because if if we do, well then, oh my gosh, shame on us for the next generation. Yeah. But if we can redouble our efforts, well, wow, maybe we can use this moment to leverage more policy changes or more innovation so that more families have mm -hmm. choices in the places that they send their kids to school. Do you see, as you're working with these issues, do you see that most people tend to care or would you say it's the other way? I mean, I think deep down people care, absolutely. Um, sometimes how you get from point A to point B, individuals might dif yeah, differ yeah. on the the sort of the issues or the goals. Yeah. And they might get, We, we my colleagues and I often talk about and individuals that we often work with that it's about the kid and not the system or it's about the family and not the system. And I think sometimes, at least in the policy realm, we get stuck on the system. Mm. And I know me personally, sometimes I get clouded by, you know, 20 years of experience focused on a particular topic and like, oh, we can't do this. And it's like, well, why not? Like, why mm. can't we start from scratch and think mm. outside the box? Yeah, like so, that mother did. Like that, mother like that did mom did, 100 percent. And sometimes those difficult situations like COVID. Yeah. They, they inspire people to come up with new solutions. Right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. And, or sometimes like someone's innovation sort of hits the market at the right time and individuals are able to take that and explode. So, yeah. yeah. So I think as far as like any sort of discouragement, I think there are moments of incredible disappointment and you have to sort of assess what role did I play yeah. and the disappointment, what do we need to change going forward and let's look for new opportunities um, yeah. so that, so that yeah. kids and families can benefit. Yeah. New opportunities. That's a key word, right? Yeah. Well, uh, here's another one that you said, a phrase that you said when we met months ago. Politics is downstream of culture. Yeah. And you might remember when we met, I was like, wait, wait, wait. Share <laughs> that. Unpack that a little bit. Okay. Yeah. That's good. I love that. So um, the quote is from Andrew Breitbart, who is like the Bright, uh, Breitbart News, um, who has since passed away. Um, but he's often credited with the coining of that phrase. Um, but for me personally and others, I've, I've read various things where people sort of disagree. But I do think that what we see in politics is a reflection of culture. So the policies and the ideas that sort of infuse themselves into what um, individuals are debating um, often are informed by the people around them. Sometimes politics becomes a little upstream, throws gasoline on the culture, and then sort of your politics then show mm -hmm. even more. But mm -hmm. like just um, I don't want to be controversial, but the issue of life. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think many in the 70s when Roe v. Wade was decided, that this would just be decided and it would go away. Well, when you look over the last, um, gosh, it's what, how many years? 50, yeah. 60 years? Uh, yeah, almost 50 years. Um, when you look at that, this idea of culture of life and you know medical technology, and you have young people that recognize, oh my gosh, my mom and my dad, they or uh, my parents went through such... Um, great links to bring me into the world, that there is this sort of like awe and wonder mm -hmm. that the environment, even if for those that, you know, might support abortion for um, like a particular up to a certain time in a pregnancy, 
there's still this like, oh my gosh, this is a human being. Mm -hmm. And so you've, as a result, you've begun to see that reflected in the policies and the ideas that are yeah. at the state level and certainly at the federal level. Yeah. Um, one thing that I hope, like given this particular debate, going back to this idea of human flourishing, is that policymakers begin to think about what then does, like uh, if you care about life, what does it begin, what does it look like at the very beginning through natural death and the policy and the uh, sort of the, the family environments um, that come after yeah. after yeah. birth. So, yeah. um, but anyway, I, I think, you know, the tone and tenor that we see right now, like you see, I think we had talked about it a little bit um, in my earlier days on Capitol Hill, uh, there was always this respect and decorum and you didn't attack your fellow member or individuals within the executive branch. You would say, you know, the gentleman for the, from Montana or the, the gentlewoman from Arizona, but there would be this, we might disagree in I substance. I have seldom called a gentleman, so thank you. You're welcome. You can go home <laughs> yes, and say, like, yes, I was called a gentleman yes. on a podcast today. Yeah, I appreciate um, it. But this idea, this, like, we might disagree on how to get from A to B, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I respect you. I know that you're doing the good work for the people of Montana, the people of Arizona, and I'm trying to do the same for my constituency. Now it's like, I like death to you yeah. because we're on different sides and or we're from different. And, and it's yeah. like, it's catty. It's But gross. you're saying that's almost, that's, that's downstream from culture. It's a reflection we see that of culture. In culture. Oh yes. my gosh. You think of social media or the anonymous quotes on um, news articles and you're like, what? Yeah. Like, would you ever say these things to your mother? Yes. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I hope not. Yeah. Or your yeah. child. It's a very unhealthy place because we don't, I mean, healthy dialogue. But that goes back to, again, the very first thing you were unpacking, inherent dignity. Exactly. So if, if I believe in your inherent dignity as a human being, we may completely disagree on this issue, but I'm still going to treat you with dignity. Exactly. And, you, and you're saying when you were first working on the Hill, you saw that a little bit more. I did. But you've seen that shift. Well, a lot now, having. We saw it shift in our culture. 100%. And that goes back to like institutions, I think, uh, whether it's at our universities, within our churches, and in places of worship, that, you know, now we attack the other, whoever yes. the other might be. Yes. It might be someone within our tribe you know, mm -hmm. our faith tribe, but mm -hmm. because they've taken a stance on X, well, now you are my enemy, yeah. even though we are both followers of Christ. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. So anyway, I do think what we're seeing in sort of this political sphere um, is a reflection of sort of sort of this disease that we that yeah. is within our institutions and essentially within our culture. Yeah. Well, Catherine, so we have to change that. No, I'm just <laughs> we do. We do, though. We absolutely do. So, but on that note, um, you're, I mean, your life is inspiring and what you've done and oh, how you've lived thanks. your life is inspiring. Uh, let's say that we have some listeners that are listening and they're going, I heard the part where you said, why should we care? I agree with that image mm -hmm. bears, but, but what do I do? Like for you, you've spent your life, this, the, you've worked in the realms where you're having an impact, but you know, let's say someone has a, what you might call for them a typical job where they're not doing this in their everyday job. How would you encourage them to get involved in... In helping like, to change the culture. Yeah. Well, like, be friends with lots of people. Hmm. And, and take time to listen to someone that doesn't share the same view of the world as you. Take time to ask the whys. Ta but literally listen. Like, 
with your heart, with both ears. Don't talk, but just like unpack where has that person come from and why do they care about the things that they do? I have many friends who we disagree on many, many things, but I absolutely adore them because of like who God created them to be. Mm-hmm. Like they, we might approach a policy issue or a community issue from a different place, but they are brilliant, smart, articulate individuals. And I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. you help make me a better person. Mm-hmm. I think similarly is, um, you know, just looking at the, you know, looking at, at Paul and James and others in scripture is that this sort of the Naomi's and the Ruth's and others is like, we need to reach back. Yes. So certainly I had um, a conversation, I was at a reunion with um, 13 friends of mine from college. Some of us had not seen each other in 25 years and um, we got to spend a long weekend together. And all of us are, are like, are, the reason why we were all together was because we were all part of the same fellowship group in college. And um, a heart's cry for many that were there was that my children come to know the Lord. Mm. and that they have a personal relationship with him. And some of them are off to college, and some of them were, they were concerned about the future of their kids. Mm. But one of my friends said, had it not been for all of you and the light, the impact that you had in my own faith journey, I wouldn't have the faith that I have today. Mm. And so it was just a great reminder. Like, I personally don't have any children so I'm not literally nurturing that next generation. Um, but that means then that I have a responsibility of reaching back and investing in those that are coming behind, yeah. whether they're 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, or five, I have that responsibility. So for anybody that's out there of like, well, what can I do? I don't work on policy. I'm not yes. mobilizing philanthropy. I might be an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer or a painter or a gardener or a pools person or working in a pool, you have a responsibility to one, listen mm-hmm. and get and sort of broaden your network and, and recognize people um, have dignity and worth and there might be something for you to learn. Uh, and then second, just sort of that bringing in that next generation. Yeah. I love, love that advice. I think the danger for all of us is that we can start living in bubbles, right? I've mm-hmm. seen it in the in the faith world in denominations. You know, you yeah. just, the denomination you start and you you never talk to anybody that believes anything different than mm-hmm. you. And and so I think we can do that all over the place. So I, I love that practical advice of just saying, you know, get outside of that bubble mm-hmm. and really listen. Yeah. And and, and and treat them with dignity with that. So so good. And I need to do a better job. Like, by a, I am not perfect in that area. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like saying this, and then I'm gonna have to like remind myself that I need yeah. to do a better job of that. But well, and me too. I'm sitting here. You yeah. Know, I, I'm starting to preach this too, and I'm yeah. going, me too. I mean, it's it's convicting a little bit to me to go. Okay, when's the last time I've had a conversation who with someone who believes radically different than me, but we had a good dialogue together mm-hmm. because. Mm-hmm. We, we, we respected each other. So that's great, great advice. So how, how would someone who's listening, if they wanted to know a little bit more about what you're doing, uh, the organization that yeah. you're helping to run, how would they get a hold of you? Um, you can go to our website. Okay. Uh, that's www.oakrosegroup.com. Um, and you can learn about the work that we get to do. You can learn about my fellow colleagues and myself. 
Um, we have our emails on there. Uh, you can just learn about the different yeah. things that we do. And then we're certainly also on LinkedIn. Yeah. So Oak Rose Group, um, we are on LinkedIn. Okay. And those would be two of the easiest ways. I We're on social media, but we don't really use it very much. Yeah. So, okay. but those so would oakrosegroup.com? Yes. Okay, good. All right. Well, this is the fun part. Um, okay. Two truths and a lie. So the audience has heard you for about half an hour. They've been inspired by you. They feel like they know you a little better. Uh, we've met before, so we'll see. You give us two truths and a lie, which as I often introduce is ironic because we call this no gray areas. I'm going to ask you to lie. Fun way for us to get to know you. Absolutely. So go ahead. Okay. So the first is I have gone scuba diving with sharks. Uh, I was in the Red Sea. Uh, I think it was in 1995 and it was a hammerhead, a black tiff, gray reef sharks. And we were just sort of in the midst of the school of Barracuda. It was utterly surreal. Um, And, you know, my heart, I think, went out of my fins and then came back and then I think (laughs) went somewhere else. But it was extraordinary. The second truth, truth and a lie, two truths and a lie is I've been to 25 countries around the world, um, several, a number of them in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Europe, um, certainly over here, and the Americas. And then, um, in fact, just two weeks ago, I had to go, I got to go to Paris with some friends, okay. and we sort of looked at Paris through the eyes of locals and food, flowers, um, and, and just, it was great. And then the last is I've run five marathons and three 200-mile relays. And with a group of people, um, my team that did the relays, we were called the Lemmings, which I thought was very fitting. Yeah. I had never, I didn't know. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great name. I did not know that Lemmings, their whole like mission is like, they follow this leader and they follow them usually off to the death yes. by jumping off a cliff. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Um, didn't realize I thought that was a great name. Yeah. And so I had to do some research. So <laughs> given that, what do you think is my lie? Oh, man, you, those, those, you set those up pretty well. I, I think the middle one, the traveling, because uh-huh. I know when we talked, I th- you do a lot of traveling. So is that a truth? It's my lie. Oh, uh, no. Um, I've been, I think, to about 32 countries, not 25. So you've been to more, that, okay, you set me up good with that <laughs> I did, one. I did, I did. I was pretty sure that the first time we met, you talked about diving in the Red Sea, because I'm I a did. scuba diver as well, and I think we were kind yeah. of talking about diving. Exactly. So I remembered that one. So so you actually scuba dived with sharks. I did. In the Red Sea, which I've heard from people that have do- dove all over the world that the Red Sea was their favorite dive. Oh my gosh. I haven't done a lot of it in the last few decades or the last probably 15 years. Yeah. Um, but I had never seen color like that. You yeah, know, as you experience, yeah. color starts to wash out between 30 and 40 feet below yeah. the water. And we were seeing so much color in that 40 to 60 uh, feet range. And I mean, it, a lot of wall diving. Yeah. So you kind of go down and then you would turn around and all you would see was blue. It just was a little surreal. Uh-huh. My first um, dive was on a wall. Was it? Where did you get yep. to go? It was in off of Honduras, Rotan. Oh my and gosh. Same thing. I've never like been there. I was down about 70, 80 feet or whatever, but it just drops down into the, like you saw it, like into an abyss. And you turn one way and you see all these colors and the sea fans and the coral. Oh my and the fish. gosh. You turn the other way and it's just dark. Out and there. you're it's like, just, 
Wow, this well, is you, you feel there. small. So yeah. small. So you also ran a number of marathons I, as a lemming. Well, I did. Um, I ran in. I did five marathons. So the Chicago Marine Corps three times, and then the Miami, and in a rainstorm. I mean, my friend and I. Uh, she lived in Erie, Pennsylvania, or she does live in Erie, Pennsylvania. And we're like, oh my gosh, January, Miami, it's going to be extraordinary. That was your rainstorm? It poured. It was like in the high 40s, yeah. low 50s. Rain was at 45 degrees, and we slogged through. Um, <laughs> and then it was sunny the next day, of yeah, course. Of course, of mm -hmm. course. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. You're Thanks welcome. for joining us. Thanks for what you do. And oh, thank um, you. I hope people connect with uh, your group and what you're doing and getting involved. And uh, thanks for the challenge, too. I'm oh, going to take gosh. you up on that challenge. Oh, Make you, sure Pat. and uh, listen. Listen well. Absolutely. Well, thank yeah. you, Pat. Thank you for all the work that you guys do um, at Operation Joy Foundation and No Gray Areas and your ability to reach out to so many individuals and provide them hope and the work that they get to do and the ways that they impact their communities is really inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the No Gray Areas podcast. To dive deeper into the story, be sure to subscribe, follow us on social media, and check out nograyareas.com.